If this is your first time to New Hope, uh, we'd like to encourage you to pick up one of those welcome cards in the pew rack in front of you and fill that out. And you can drop it in the offering box on the way out when you leave later today. Also, don't forget to use that for prayer requests if you'd like to. If you have anything that's on your heart that you'd like to share. I learned a few years ago about a, a lady who was um, shopping in a mall, and she went to the food court in the mall and found a vendor there where they sold a, um, a Hershey candy bar called a, a Kit Kat candy bar. And she was going to take a break from her shopping, and she went and set her purse down and sat down on a bench, and there's a Kit Kat candy bar next to her. Um, she opened up her magazine and began thumbing through it. And uh, there was a gentleman sitting next to her on the bench, and he had his copy of USA Today. He was reading the morning newspaper. And uh, he flipped to another page, and he reached over, and he took that Kit Kat candy bar, and he opened it and unwrapped it and uh, snapped a piece off. But she could feel herself getting all hot and flush inside, and her heart began racing, and she was insulted that he would dare take her food. And so she reached over and snapped off another piece and shoved it in her mouth and chewed on it and thought, certainly he won't do that again. And sure enough, he flipped another page and he reached over and he snapped another piece off and put it in his mouth and began chewing on it. She was mortified. She was furious. And in a huff, she grabbed that last remaining piece and shoved it in her mouth and stormed off down the mall hallway. She uh, went down the corridor, shopped at a couple stores, but she was just steaming inside. And she thought, I'm going to go look for him. And she went walking down the mall and saw him in a donut shop. And he had just paid for a donut. She doesn't know what came over her, but she stormed into the donut shop. And as he was reaching to pick up the donut and put it in his mouth, she grabbed his wrist and pulled it over and took a big bite of it. And feeling justified, she thought, ha, I've shown him. He'll never do that again. She was just ruined for her shopping day. And so she went out to her car, sat down in her car, and opened up her purse to get her keys out. And inside her purse was her Kit Kat candy bar. <laughs> yeah, you'd like a do-over on that one, wouldn't you? <laughs> you see, there's perceived truth and there's real truth factual reality. She perceived the circumstances to be truth, and in fact, when she found the facts, they weren't truth at all. I don't know what that man did with her next time he saw her in the mall. He probably ran the other direction. I found last week that the National Academy of Sciences and Medicine, one of the most prestigious organizations in the United States, issued a, uh, a new copy, a, a reprint of a book that came out actually in the 1980s. And the title of this book is Science, Evolution, and Creationism. It's an attractive title. Um, you're not sure what to expect when you get inside the book. Um, when you thumb through the pages, it appears to be a very good scientific journal until you get to the section on creationism in which it... Uh, it really slams those who believe in creationism, those who believe in God creator. Um, as a matter of fact, this is a quote from the National Academy of Sciences regarding creation. While the mechanisms of evolution are still under investigation, scientists universally accept that the cosmos, our planet, and life evolved and continue to evolve. 
Yet the teaching of evolution to school children is still a contentious issue. In Science and Creationism, the NAS, National Academy of Science, states unequivocally that creationism has no place in any science curriculum at any level. That just came out last week. It was issued to all of the public schools, all of the government schools in the United States as a way to help teachers educate students about where they came from. It's an updated guide, and it states unequivocally that, in their view, it is not truth when you speak of creation. I'm going to invite you to turn to uh, um, a passage in your Bible, if you have it with you. If not, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. A passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago when I taught on the consummation of the ages. It's an Old Testament book. I'd like you to open up to the, the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. If you have a black Bible in front of you, it's page 660. And if you have a brown Bible in front of you, it's page 658. I see the dust puffing up from your Bibles. You haven't been to Micah in a long time. Now, what I want you to do is just kind of hold your place there. We're not going to get to that right now, but just hold your place in Micah chapter 5, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Up on the screen, you're going to see John chapter 18. I'd like you to look at this with me. This is when Jesus, just before the crucifixion, is standing before Pilate. Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? There's a word that we use very freely in the English language. Myself not being content with just using it, but wanting to know definitions of everything that's used in Scripture, I went to the Greek interpretation of truth, and this is what it came up. Truth, huh? Okay. Aletheia, truth. Truth means truth. But the word verity caught my attention. So I went to look up the word verity and found that it was a noun and that what it's actually saying is it's reality, it's a fact, an indisputable fact. With that in mind, I want you to think in terms of an argument that Jesus got into with some men who didn't want to hear truth. Now, Pilate would be one of those. He didn't want to hear truth, and so he went about his government business and just carried out the plans of executing Jesus. But later in Scripture, another place in Scripture, in John chapter 8, I'm going to invite you to read along with me. I'll read this to you and just follow along on the screen an argument that Jesus got into with some men regarding the issue of truth. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered to him, this is some Jews who were arguing with him, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the aletheia, the truth, the facts, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do, meaning that Abraham didn't seek to kill men unjustly. That's what Jesus is saying. This Abraham did not seek to do. You are doing the deeds of your father. 
They said to him, we were not born of fornication, insulting him is what they're doing. We have one Father, God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Now answering his own question, Jesus says this, It is because you cannot hear my word. That's the same thing he said to Pilate. Those who hear my word know truth. Jesus said, It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the aletheia, the truth, because there is no aletheia in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the aletheia, the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God, here he says it again, hears the words of God. For the reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Now jumping down to verse 56. This argument so incited them that they wanted to stone him at that moment. Verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The world is reeling with uncertainty. And when someone makes a truth claim that they believe to be contrary to their own stand, they get violent, physically violent. That's what you see unfolding here. These people were irritated that Jesus was claiming that he came from God, the Son of God, and he was claiming I am truth. Now, 2 Timothy, we examined a couple weeks ago when we did the consummation of the ages, uh, taking a stand about people turning their ears away from truth. Read this. 2 Timothy 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, aletheia, and will turn aside to myths. Today's conflict with the pagan world over truth is equal to the conflict that our spiritual ancestors faced when they walked on the earth. The battle for truth is so intense today that you cannot find a place in this world where you can get agreement among a group of maybe 100 people on a particular issue such as this. The Archbishop of Canterbury, three days before Christmas, he leads the Church of England, if you're not familiar with that, the Anglican Church, is in an interview on PBS. And in this interview, the radio interviewer asked him questions about the true Christmas story. Now, the Archbishop of Canterbury began to take apart the Nativity story. 
So much so that millions, not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but millions of emails poured in to the Church of England debunking the Archbishop of Canterbury for his take on the nativity story. Now here's what he said. See what you agree with and disagree with. The Archbishop of Canterbury said, more than likely in the Christmas story we have it wrong because probably there were not three kings. We don't really know what they are. They were magi. And more than likely it didn't occur that his, his birth occurred in December. Most likely his birth occurred, the birth of Christ, in June. For that, the archbishop was lacerated by people verbally. He wasn't wrong. Most people know that Jesus was probably not born in December. He probably was born in June. Most people probably understand, people in the church, that there probably weren't three kings. There were wise men. There were magi. Here's the reason I bring that up. People don't know anymore what is truth and what is, isn't truth. The Archbishop of Canterbury took apart a mental image that they had in their mind of what Christmas was supposed to look like. And when he went contrary to what their picture was of truth, he was lacerated verbally. They went after him. Now, Pilate, when he was asking what is truth, he was asking the right source. But he didn't really seem to care for the answer. We looked at Galatians 4.4 two weeks ago, in which it says, God sent forth his Son. And we examined the consummation of the ages, starting with the fall of Satan all the way to the arrival of Jesus incarnate on earth. But God sent forth his Son, the hinge pin of history. Apart from those words, man is lost. That is truth. Now, with all that in mind, all that set up, I want you to go to Micah 5. I asked you to turn to earlier. Micah 5, 2. It's not going to come up on the screen. This is the verse that we ended that message with a couple weeks ago. It was a prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Beginning point and ending point. The reason I bring that up for you is his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, meaning that he is an eternal being, but one who has come from Bethlehem, meaning that he was born. The everlasting one. That's what that verse is referring to. And what I told you a couple weeks ago was that that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before Jesus is born, and then 70 years after Jesus dies, this is written in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Scripture quoting both from Micah seven to eight hundred years earlier and in Revelation 70 years after the death of Jesus. He is from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time. As we examine origins over the next number of weeks, we have to examine it through the light of the fact that Jesus served as the Son of God, as 
the one through whom God created all that you know. That is fact and that is truth according to the scripture. That's what we're going to examine. What we're about to enter into is far bigger than me and far bigger than you. And so I would covet your prayers. I'm going to ask you to stop with me right now at this time. Just kind of empty your mind as much as possible and ask God to allow our eyes to be unveiled. Would you pray with me? Father, most of us in this room are, um, are of a school system in which we were taught things contrary to your scriptures, to your words. From the youngest person in this room to uh, the most elderly. And we know that your word proclaims truth and yet it's confusing to us when learned, educated people come out with statements that are contrary to what your word says. So God, I ask in these moments and in the weeks ahead of us, that you would take the shackles off, that you would open our eyes and open our ears and allow us to understand what your word is proclaiming. We ask for the ability to see through the power of your spirit and understand the written word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't ask that just for now, but in the weeks ahead, if New Hope is your church home and you intend to be here, I would appreciate it if you pray for me throughout the week as I study these things to share God's word with you. Francis Schaeffer, uh, many of you could be familiar with him. He's been dead for a number of years now, but in the 70s, uh, he was regarded as one of the world's greatest theologians. And Francis Schaeffer, uh, founded an institute called Labrie. There were a lot of people who went there for uh, theological studies. This is a statement from Francis Schaeffer near the end of his life. Let me read this quote to you. It'll appear on the screen. If I had an hour to spend with a person on an airplane, a person who didn't know the Lord, I would spend the first 55 minutes talking about man being created in the image of God and the last five minutes on the presentation of the gospel of salvation that we could restore man to that original intended image. I would agree with him. Because unless we really get a grasp on the fact that we have an eternal, benevolent, loving God who created us, the salvation story doesn't make any sense. None at all. In the beginning, fill in the blank. Who's the youngest person in this room? Is there a five-year-old in here? Preston, you're nine years old. Anybody younger than nine? How old are you? Eight. Eight. Okay, let's give this a shot. I'm going to say the phrase and you fill in the blank. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God created the heaven and the earth. Emphasis on who? It's not a test. You could say Jesus because that's always the right answer. Okay? <laughs> in the beginning, God. Perhaps the most familiar, most recognized statement. I think you could perhaps make that statement in almost any country on the face of the earth and someone could fill in that blank. In the beginning, God, but probably the most contested statement of all time. I'm going to uh, 
give you just a background for the word origins and why I selected this. If you take the word beginning in Greek, arche, it means origin, a commencement, a beginning. And here at the outset of studying origins, I'll give you a bit of a disclaimer. I am aware that when God confronted Job, one of the most righteous men to have ever walked the face of the earth, God had a bit of an argument with Job in which there was no real debate. But God said this to Job, Where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? I have to keep that in mind as I study this. Because just when we think we have all the answers and we have it all figured out, God says, "Uh uh-uh. So if God can say to Job, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth, I recognize that I can't add to this and I can't take away from this lest I offend God. And there's a great danger in theologians' minds today to try and pull things out of Scripture that it doesn't really say or sometimes add things to it that it did not intend. So I will be very careful to do that, not to do that. When it comes to the study of science, I am not a scientist. And any one of my former science, biology, or physiology teachers would tell you I am not a scientist. It is not a gift of mine. I am a Bible teacher, and I'm a theologian, and I love to understand God's Word. But I understand that I can also lean into those who are educated in science to try and understand in what way science can help illuminate the text. Genesis was not written as a science book. And many of us try and make it into a science book, but God did not intend that. He does give answers to science. With that in mind, I want to understand for all of us that this is critical that we get this in our mind. If you are a junior high student, if you are a senior high student, if you are a university student, if you are an elementary student, you are being force-fed an indoctrination of things that you will hear totally contrary to what I'm about to teach you. I'm not going to try and teach you science. I'm going to try and teach you God's truth. All right? Understanding origins is foundational to the rest of the Bible. For this reason, if Genesis doesn't speak truth, and you know, it's not that big of a book. It's 30-some chapters. It doesn't take up that many pages. But it's foundational to the rest of the Bible. If it doesn't teach truth, we have to throw out the rest of Scripture. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 8.6 up on the screen. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. If you begin to believe that God is not the creator and that we did evolve as a species, then perhaps you can't also believe that God is the redeemer. If he's not the creator, how could he have any power to redeem you. If, for instance, if in 2 Peter, it tells us all the way in the New Testament that God, with one voice, will dissolve the entire universe, as in like a nuclear explosion, it's written in 2 Peter that the universe will collapse in on itself, and then God will provide a new heaven and a new earth. But if it says that in 2 Peter, and you doubt that, 
you're doubting everything in between. Cannot the same God who can uncreate the universe create the universe in the manner, in the time that he pleases? What we believe about creation and what we believe about Genesis has implications all the way to the end of Scripture. It has implications as to the end of human history. What will happen in the book of Origins will reveal to us truth. Origins then, students especially, get this in your mind. I'm not setting you up to go in and have an argument with your teacher in school, okay? But it's critical that you get this in your mind. It is, to all human thinking, it becomes critical to how we conduct our life. There's an equation found in the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Immediately at the outset of Scripture, in the very first verse, you're confronted with a problem. You have an enormous choice. You either have to accept that God did create the heavens and the earth or that he did not. Those are the only two valid options that you actually have. Now look at the first verse very closely. It is indicative, it is indicative of the incredible mind of God. Look very closely at it. Now scientists, with this in mind, scientist Herbert Spencer lived back in the 1800s and he cataloged five systems of recording things that happen in the known universe. They are time, force, action, space, and matter. For that, he won the Nobel Prize. Five categories in which you can record, and he was not a believer in God, not a Christian, but five categories in which you can put everything that happens in the known world. Time, force, action, space, and matter. Dr. Spencer may not have known what he stumbled on, but he was highly lauded by the people of his time. And even today, this theory is still used. Now, Spencer listed them in that order, time, force, action, space, and matter. Look at Genesis 1.1 with that in mind. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force, created, that's action. The heavens, that's space, and matter, and the earth, that's matter, the five categories. In the very first verse of the Bible, in the most concise statement possibly imaginable, God cataloged all five of those categories. We didn't discover it until the 1800s. But God said, here they are, in the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, heaven, space, earth, matter. Now, whether you want to believe it or not, the debate has gone on for hundreds of years. Some of you have only lived seven, eight, nine years. Darwin started struggling with this back in the early 1800s. Prior to him, there were men who were struggling with, where did we come from? A scientific answer that's different than what the Scripture says. The debate comes down to this. Either you believe the Bible or you don't. So here's that question I posed to you a couple months ago, and then a couple weeks ago again. Do you really believe that what you say you believe is really real? Do you really believe that what you say you believe is really real? Now, I may have thrown this fact out too fast last week for you to catch this, but among those who call themselves Christians in the United States of America, Western Christians, 
only about 12% of those who call themselves Christians believe that this is accurate, authoritative, inspired word of God. Those who fall into the other 70% category believe that you can pick and choose and there are things that are not accurate in here. I'm not sure what you can begin to pick out and throw out, but there are those who believe you can. Some of those are called theistic evolutionists. This is what a theistic evolutionist believes, that God launched it and then evolution took over and they deny that Genesis is an accurate record of the account of creation. Now, there's one more category, and they're called progressive creationists. Progressive creationists have only been around for, I mean, the theory of it, for probably the last 15 years. And progressive, progressive creationists think this, creation is not or did not occur as Genesis says, but rather it was over long ages and God sort of projected himself into it along the way. When things got off course, God would come back and re-steer it again. Those are two very popular philosophies of those who fit into that 70% category. Now, if you think that perhaps you don't fit into that category, you'll have to ask yourself, am I a naturalistic evolutionist? Am I someone who believes that theistic evolution isn't right and progressive creationism isn't right or progressive evolution isn't right? Perhaps I'm a naturalistic evolutionist in that everything that is around us evolved. This is uh, something I want you to keep in mind. This is a quote from a, a professor who um, made this statement. He's, he's highly regarded. His name is Douglas Kelly. As we move forward, listen to what he said. There is no doubt that the biblical vision of man as God's creature, whom he made in his own image, has had the most profound, powerful effect on human dignity on liberty, on the expansion of the rights of the individual, and on political systems, on the development of medicine, and on every other area of culture. How different from the humanistic viewpoint of man as merely an evolved creature, not made in God's image, because there is no God. Such a premise has enabled the Marxist totalitarianism states conveniently to liquidate millions of their citizens because of the assumption that there is no transcendent person in whose image those citizens are created. No being to give those citizens a dignity and a right to exist beyond what the state determines. He is right. Either we evolved out of the slime, an amoeba that developed somehow, or we were uniquely created and designed by a loving God. Those are the only two choices. Now, when you get down to it and you burrow down deep, you find that the debate is not just biological. It is a spiritual and a moral debate. It is spiritual truth. This issue questions man's dignity. Are you designed in the image of God? Or did you evolve from a primate species? Here's some of the questions that I believe the evolutionist came away from theism with because these are questions that are hard to deal with. Now think in terms of all that you've learned so far this morning and ask yourselves these questions. Is there a universal judge? Is there a universal moral law? Is there a lawgiver? Are people to live according to God's standard? 
Where, the, where will there be a final assessment of how men and women live? Is there a final judgment? Do you understand that if there is not a God creator, none of those questions matter? You can't evolve a soul. So when you get down to the brass tacks of it, it is about morality and it is about spirituality. There's some alternatives that I want you to hear that Dr. John MacArthur came up with. Alternative contrasts that may make it very black and white for you. And this is introductory stuff before we get into the book of Genesis. So hear me out on this. Think of these in terms of the evolutionist view and the Christian's view as I read these off to you. This is the materialistic view. What we call the evolutionist view is a materialistic view. The materialistic view says, ultimate reality is impersonal matter. No God exists. They won't debate with you on that. The Christian view says, ultimate reality is an infinite, personal, loving God. The materialistic view says, the universe is created by chance without any ultimate purpose. The Christian view, the universe was lovingly created by God for a specific purpose. The materialistic view, man is the product of impersonal time plus chance plus matter. As a result, no man has eternal value because you can't evolve a soul. The Christian view, man was created by God in his image and is loved by God. Because of, all, of this, all men are endowed with eternal value. Value is not derived ultimately from ourselves, but from the source transcending us, God himself. Two more. The materialistic view. Morality is defined by every individual according to his own views and his own interest. Morality is ultimately relative because every person is the final authority for his own views. Does that not sound like today's headlines? Here's the Christian view. Morality is defined by God and immutable because it is based on God's unchanging, holy character. Last one, the materialistic view. About life after death. Afterlife brings personal extinction for everyone. The Christian view, afterlife involves either eternal life with God or eternal separation from Him. Which of those views you take is not a secondary issue. And yet, Christians in America, in the Western thinking world, probably in other countries as well, have made this a secondary issue. This is not a secondary issue. This is the very foundation of all truth. And that's why it's called origins. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. How does it go on? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. When you begin to tamper with Genesis, and in a group this size, with this many people in a room, there's many views, especially considering the school systems that most of us have been raised in, about where we came from. God says unequivocally, don't mess with my word, and I will tell you where I came from. Evolution attempts to un-God God. You cannot be a theistic evolutionist. It doesn't work unless you deny the truths of God's word. If man is only an animal, an accident of nature, 
then where is our meaning and our dignity and our purpose? Evolution says, over time, by chance, matter evolved into the entire universe. Now, I want to read another quote to you, and I'm sorry if this feels very academic, but in an introduction, getting ready to study this book, these are things that are very important to get in your mind because I think it's quite black and white. This is a quote from a man by the name of Jacques Monod, who is a physicist and a biologist, and he was given the Nobel Prize. He lives in France, and this is his statement regarding who you are. Obviously, he believes in evolution. Man is alone in the universe's unfeeling immensity out of which he emerged by chance. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, is at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. And he's saying that chance alone is the source of everything that exists today. Everything that you know is here by random chance. When logic is abandoned, people turn aside to myth, and it begins to sound like 2 Timothy. I want you to look with me up on the screen at what looks like a rock. Anybody, raise your hand in here if you've seen that before. Is that familiar to you at all? Okay. When you grew up in the school systems, if you grew up in a traditional government school, you saw the evolution of the species de depicted on a chart, starting out with the earliest primate of an ape, and each successive indicative caricature became one who went from this position all the way up to this position, and you began to see them walking as an upright man. In the midst of that chart is one who's known as Java Man. Java Man was discovered in the early 1900s. And the reason he was given that name was because he was discovered in Indonesia on the banks of a river in East Java. The scientist who discovered the skull cap also discovered a uh, femur bone, a human bone, and a set of teeth along with it in the same area. Very quickly, this skullcap was pronounced as the missing link. The link between early primate man and fully evolved human. Now today, those charts are still used in your school system. You still see the primates ascending through the species, even though this truth has been neglected. Forty years ago, it was proven that that femur bone that he found with a skullcap was actually from a modern humanoid, a modern human man even though they declared this to be 450,000 years old. And the set of teeth was found to be 30 years ago from an orangutan. The three pieces were put together, and an artist was handed the skullcap with those pieces, and they began to do drawings and concluded that Java Man was indeed the missing link. Turning aside to myth, looking after teachers who will tickle their ears, there is such a desire to authenticate evolution that scientists who are very well educated are making dramatic leaps, much greater leaps than what you and I make as Bible-believing Christians. It takes great faith to believe what they're teaching. Now, Java man has been disproven. There have been others that have come along the way, that, like the Piltdown man, who have been recently disproven as well. Those don't ever make it into the classrooms, unfortunately, the discussion of these findings. But it's very evident, as time goes on, that God is beginning to show 
just how foolish man is for not believing his original formula. Do you know that even Darwin had a great struggle with what he came up with as his theories? This is a quote from Darwin's Origin of the Species from the sixth chapter. I don't take it out of context. I just tell you where it came from. It was near the end of the book. And this is what Darwin wrote. Listen very closely. Long before having arrived at this part of my work, a crowd of difficulties will have occurred to the reader. Some of them are so grave that to this day I can never reflect on them without being staggered. Such simple instincts as bees making a beehive could be sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. And to think that the eye could evolve by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Were you ever taught that in school? That is the confessions of a man who was really struggling with these great leaps he was making to try and escape God because this is a quote from him at the end of his life. Listen closely. I am determined to escape from design, creation, and a personal God at all cost. Do you know who the number one influencer of Adolf Hitler was? Charles Darwin. Adolf Hitler believed that Christianity and the story of Christianity was the greatest farce, quote, ever perpetrated upon the human race. And he believed that because we evolved from a species of primates, that therefore exterminating the Jews was not a moral wrong. It was survival of the fittest. If you read the book Mein Kampf, you'll find that Adolf Hitler espoused evolution. It stands directly in the face of what God says in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. I give you three more verses to take with you today as you leave. As a follow-up to that one, listen to these. Romans 11.36 For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. 1 Corinthians 8.6 But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him and the one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Finally, John 1.3 all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you see why it's foundational to get it in your mind? That's from the New Testament. You cannot take any of the Bible and not believe all of the Bible. It does not work to say, I believe the New Testament, but I don't believe the creation story. And Christians are buying into the lie. Many Christians Believe the lie. Here is what an evolutionist thinks at his core. You're familiar with the origin of the species, Charles Darwin's book. There was an introduction written to that book by a man by the name of um, Dr. Burrow, J.W. Burrow. This is his quote as he introduces the book. This is what an evolutionist really thinks. Nature 
was the product of blind chance and a blind struggle and man, a lonely, intelligent mutation, scrambling with the brutes for his sustenance. It was as if an umbilical cord had been cut and men found themselves part of a cold, passionless universe. He is a lonely, intelligent mutation produced out of chance. He is a protoplasm waiting to become manure. This stands directly in opposition of the creator, loving God. You couldn't be more black and white. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, aletheia, and will turn aside to myth. Truth is foundationally, fundamentally, about who God is. That's where we're going in this series. I'm sure it feels very academic at this point, but I hope you enjoy the exegetical way in which we're going to approach the book of Genesis. Before I let you go, we're going to pray, certainly, because we're going to have a, a time downstairs. Potluck, if you didn't come prepared to eat, that's fine. We want you to stay and eat with us because there's a lot of extra food. Um, a couple things that I want you to know before you leave today. If you have any questions about the things that we've taught and you want to talk with me further, I'm available. I'd love to do that. If you don't have time to talk right now and you have questions and you want to write it out on the welcome card, please be sure and do that. There are a couple of announcements before I let you go. One is that in your bulletin, you're going to see that the women's Bible study is listed as 7.30. It's actually at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. Uh, Lori and the gals that were leading that had uh, 32 ladies come this last Wednesday, but there's still room if you want to come and you didn't make it. You can still come. Either call the office or just show up on Wednesday. And then in two weeks, um, we're getting ready to launch our student ministry, trying to get uh, an idea around how that's going to take shape. We're inviting parents and students to stay after church two weeks from today, which is the 27th. And we're going to have a, a time with uh, ice cream sundaes and pizza, and we're going to talk about what student ministry is going to look like in this, in this brand new church. And then lastly, I want to just remind you to see Larry Conover um, or to drop a note if you're interested in being on that prayer warrior watch list that we can send you prayer updates. Uh, if you're going downstairs, um, I'm not sure what the rules are, so we'll find out when we get down there. I just know they have a lot of food. I want to invite you to pray with me. Would you stand? Father, we're thankful for a privilege of examining your word um, without fear of any reprisal from government agencies, that we live in a land where we can worship you and sing to you and study your word without any fear of persecution. We're just very grateful for that, and I'm sure we take it for granted, God, but thank you. Thank you also for unveiling our eyes and showing us truth. The things that are hidden from the world, they consider it to be foolishness, but you have recorded it in your scriptures, and we ask through the power of your Spirit that you continue to do that. Father, for my brothers and sisters as they leave this room, especially students in this room who walk back into classrooms, being taught things that are contrary to your word, I ask God that you give them a resolve to stand as bright lights, as stars shining for you. Make them confident and bold that what you wrote, 
what you left for us as a record is indeed true. It is fact. It is verity. God, we ask your blessing on the meal that's about to take place in the fellowship and the time that we'll spend together in talking. In all these things, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.